Please open your Bibles to Paul's first letter to the Corinthians, chapter 16. Now our study has been verses 1 through 4. And you remember it's all about the collection. All about the collection. You say, what collection? Well, this is a collection that Paul is making at this time for the poor saints at Jerusalem. They're in great need. And Paul loves those believers there. So he's collecting money from all the churches that are around. Churches that he has established. Churches that he has been there to not only preach the gospel, but like Acts 14 says, make many disciples, strengthen those disciples, appoint elders. And these churches are just off and running and they're going. And now he is going to all of them and make making a collection to be able to help these poor saints at Jerusalem. Now in collecting that money, we learn about what giving is like for Christians. They are to take from their regular giving and set it aside to help with this great need. In other words, they have the regular giving and really what all Paul is saying is take out of that to be able to help. I want you to take out of, you already have the giving. This is something that happens. It's regular. Just take out of that to be able to help. Now, in order to be able to do that, then they must have certain understanding about what regular giving is like. And so that's what we have here. Now, having said all of that, you remember when we talk about what we do with our money, we are really talking about the condition of our heart, right? Our hearts. And so this really has been a practical way to gauge where our hearts are or have been and even need to be. And so verses 1 through 4 become a very, very important study for us, for our hearts. And I trust that has been immensely helpful for you to let God's Word show you your heart these last two weeks. Now we've worked through five principles on giving and this morning we're going to make it through the last three principles from verses two through four and they aren't that hard to explain and so actually I'm going to save it for the very end. I have something else I want to share with you that takes some time and what I want to do is go back to the collection and the reason why this is such a big deal for Paul. Now here it is. It is a big deal for Paul because he understands God's heart for the poor. He understands the Lord's heart for the needy. And what I wanted to spend the first part of our study on is asking that question. What is God's heart for the poor? Now listen, whatever it is, that's what our hearts should look like, right? I mean, why is it such a big deal to care for the needy, to help the poor? That's what we're working with here in this first part this morning. And it is my hope to give you a very clear, strong sense of God's heart for the needy, God's heart for the poor, so that we can imitate that, right? Now, this isn't going to be the definitive word on it. I mean, we could spend weeks, months, really, on a theology of care for the poor. And maybe sometime we need to do that. But what I I want is for us to understand God's heart for the needy. So let's start in Exodus. If you want to turn there, you can do that. Um... If you want to turn to these places that we're going to go to, but you you might want to have your fingers on speed dial, okay? Because that's what we're doing here this morning. We're going to be cooking, okay? All right, chapter 20, verse 2. Now, Ten Commandments. This is that section here in Exodus chapter 20. Verse 2. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. And it says, out of the house 
of slavery. Now think about that. That's how Israel uh, got started. They were in a needy place. They were in slavery. In fact, it calls it the house of slavery. In other words, this is what their home was. They were at home with slavery. They were at home with poverty, with extreme dependence. They were in a needy place, completely dependent on the mercy of Egypt. Now, what made the Lord God get her out of that needy place? Was it Israel's sterling heart? Was it the fact that Israel was such a sparkling people? Right? Oh, so nice. Such kind people. I've got to go over there and get them out of this needy place. No, nothing on Israel's part, right? And so what we have here is an act by God that's just purely His mercy. It's just His mercy. His grace, His eternal love, You could say his covenant love, his committed love. He has committed himself to loving her in that direction. And in a sense, this becomes sort of a picture of of a husband-wife type of kind of a marriage type picture of committed love. But I think there's another way that that we need to see this committed love, and it's not just as... uh, husband to a bride, but it is also as wealthy to the needy as the caretaker to one in great need. God made a commitment to Abraham and then repeated it to Isaac and then Jacob and then Joseph. And now it is the day of Moses. And he uses Moses to get them out of poverty, right? Slavery. Now, what do we learn about God in, in, in doing this? What does Israel learn? She learns that he is a delivering God, a liberating God, right? So then the Lord gets Israel going and says, you need to learn from me. I'm, I'm like that, and I want you to be like that. In other words, I have made you a people to be a kingdom of priests that live like that. So you have Leviticus 23, verse 22. When you reap the harvest of your land... You shall not reap to the very corners of your field, nor gather the gleaning of your harvest. You are to leave them for the needy and the alien. Why? He ends like this. I am the Lord. You ever wonder why he says that all the time? Leviticus, I am the Lord. We know that you're the Lord. No, 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 no. What he's trying to say is, because I'm like that. I'm like that, so you need to do this. You need to be this way because I am this way. And I want you to be like me. I mean, you farm your land and your land produces. Leave the corners alone. Why? They're for the needy. They're for the poor. See, Don't say to yourself, I'm going to get all of it so I can have all of it for me. Leave room in your heart for those people that have needs. Jesus said, the poor you shall have always with you. The Lord's goal, by the way, isn't to eliminate poverty. Listen to me carefully as I say this. And I want to say it again. His goal is not to eliminate poverty. You say, why not? I mean, shouldn't that be our goal? I mean, isn't that the reason why we do all these things and as a government and as a as a nation and all that kind of stuff, we're going to find a way to eliminate poverty. No. Well, we might have that as a goal, but we're fighting against God. We'll never eliminate poverty. He said the poor you'll always have with you. 
Well, what, what, what is the deal then? What's the goal? I'll give it to you. It is to get people to demonstrate love to the needy. Not to eliminate it, but to get you and I to actually show love for people that have needs. So we can eliminate it, right? Well, I don't know. That's the Lord's department. But ours is just to love them. Just to love them. It's an opportunity for love. Poverty is an opportunity for love. Do you understand that? The Lord is in control of all these things. And so therefore, because poverty always exists, that must mean that he's giving us numerous opportunities to love people. See? Love from those who belong to the Lord. See? Now, we don't really have the time, but there in Leviticus 25, if, if you want to put your eyes there, it's fine. But we're not, I mean, there's so much there. I, I can't do this. Um, but understand, the Lord established this law of redemption. He, he established um, the Jubilee, the year of Jubilee, right? And the idea was that every seventh year, you let your land go. See, why would you do that? I mean, wouldn't it go bad? No, because the Lord promised to take care of that land during the seventh year so that the eighth year it would then regain a production. And in the ninth year, that production would be overflowing blessing. And he even said things like, watch, watch me. Watch me do this. I love that. Now, you read all of that chapter and it's all about taking care of the poor and how to do it. And whether it's your poor countrymen or strangers and the Lord had all kinds of laws built into the seventh year and then he had the 50th year called the year of Jubilee and and all of it was to take care of the needy person, to let them go of their debts, so that they're so so it could be sort of a reset. Let's reset. I like that. That's the Lord showing them the heart that hey, sometimes people can get into bad spots, difficult spots, and you as a people are going to make it so that you can help them get started over again. Deuteronomy 26, verse 5, when you enter the promised land and people in that land start asking questions, quote, you shall answer and say before the Lord your God, my father was a wandering uh, Aramean and he went down to Egypt and sojourned there, few in number, but there he became a great, mighty and populous nation. How? The Lord did it, right? In other words, we were desperately needy, but then the Lord took us out of that poverty. See, He met our needs, both physical and spiritual. The Egyptian treated us harshly. We cried to the Lord. He saw our affliction and he helped us. That's the picture that we have. Israel entered the land that way. You remember that? God promised to take care of her as long as she followed him. How? Worship him, he says, and live for him. Now, what would be the sign that she lived for him? Be like God. That is, live and have character like he has. Now, what is God like? He helps the needy, right? Be like him. What is he like? He helps the needy. Now, did she do that while in the land? Well, I'm going to show you a picture of it. Turn to Amos 2. Trust me, I am giving you, as you know, the super short version of this. But I'm trying to kind of synthesize it so you can see this. Amos chapter 2. Now this is the prophet's word to the northern part of Israel. Now the northern part of Israel is sometimes called Israel, sometimes called is called Ephraim. Okay? And Amos is a prophet. He actually was, Amos is an interesting guy. He was actually a, he was a fig picker. He picked figs. That's what he did. 
He's a farmer guy. And the Lord said, I want you to be a prophet for me now. You're, that's your old job. Here's your new job. Okay, imagine that, right? Farmer guy, say, hey, you're going to be my preacher. Well, that would be kind of interesting, right? All right, here we go. Verse 6, chapter 2. Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Israel, and for four, I will not revoke its punishment. Now, why is the Lord going to punish Israel? Keep going. Because they sell the righteous for money and the needy for a pair of sandals. That's terrible. And then he goes on to expose more sins. But listen, the number one sin that tipped the scales for the Lord in order for him to bring his punishment against her was not caring for the needy. When did the Lord punish her? 722 B.C. The northern part sent her into captivity to, into the hands of Assyria. Chapter 5, verse 11, Therefore, because you impose heavy rent on the poor and exact a tribute of grain from them, verse 12, For I know your transgressions are many and your sins are great. You who distress the righteous and accept bribes and turn aside the poor in the gate and so forth. And so he says, look at what you're doing. I'm, I'm going to punish you because you, you just don't care for people. You don't care about people. And in particular, you don't care about the needy. And maybe you make it seem like you do. But when the bottom line comes out, you don't. Chapter 6 Verses 4 through 7, same thing. You drink wine and you live it up while the needy suffer. And you're, you're going into exile, verse 7, as the head of the exiles. Look over to chapter 7, verse 11. You'll die by the sword and go from your land into exile. Chapter 7, verse 17, same thing. Why? Because you abuse the needy. You're, you're not o- you not only ignore them, you took advantage of them. There's no love. There's no compassion. There's no help from you, see. Well, that's northern Israel. Maybe southern was a little better. Well, the southern part is called Judah, and the Lord sent a different prophet. First he sent Micah, and then he sent Isaiah. So turn to Isaiah chapter 10, verse 1. Woe to those who enact evil statutes, and to those who constantly record unjust decisions, so as to deprive the needy of justice and rob the poor of my people of their rights so that widows may be their spoil and that they may plunder the orphans. That is just absolute terrible. The Lord says you've gotten to a really low place when you're willing to abuse the needy like that. All throughout this chapter, Isaiah says... God has been merciful. His hand is still outstretched to Judah, even though she is like this. But he can't close his eyes to this kinds of this kind of evil. You know, to you know, for people refusing to care for the needy, he can't close his eyes to that. So eventually, there comes a threshing, you know, point, a threshold, where he says, "I, I can't." Refusing to care for the needy, that is an indicator of the depth of depravity, beloved. When you close your heart in that direction. Jeremiah, same thing. Listen to chapter 5, starting in verse 26. For wicked men are found among my people. They watch like fowlers lying in wait. They set a trap. They catch men. Right? I mean... They they use devices that should be used for animals to be able to get food, and yet they're catching people to do what? What is the fowler looking for? Food. They're eating the people. Like a cage full of birds. 
So their houses are full of deceit. Therefore they have become great and rich. They're fat. They are sleek. They also excel in deeds of wickedness. They do not plead the cause, the cause of the orphan, that they may prosper, and they do not defend the rights of the poor. Shall I not punish these people, declares the Lord, on a nation such as this? Shall I not avenge myself? Right, yeah. In other words, I'm going to judge her, and I'm right to do that, because look at how she treats the needy and the poor. So Judah isn't any better. And I watch this, chapter 34, verse 17. Therefore, thus says the Lord, you have not obeyed me in proclaiming release, each man to his, na- his brother and each man to his neighbor. Now remember, we talked about this already, the, the year of Jubilee and law of redemption and the Sabbath release for those in debt and in great need. That's what he's talking about here. When he says, you have not obeyed me in proclaiming release each man to his brother and each man to his neighbor, that's, what he, that's the release he's talking about. You haven't released the needy from their debts on the appointed days. Why? Because you're fleecing them. Needy people. Verse 17, Behold, I am proclaiming a release to you. So you're not going to observe the release well, then I'm going to give you a new release. I'm going to proclaim my own release. What release? Well, declares the Lord, a release to the sword, to the pestilence, and to famine. And I will make you a terror to all the kingdoms of the earth. Jeremiah was talking about the exile and captivity to Babylon. And by the way, it happened, right? Now why is this such a big deal? Because it is the clear mark that you're not acting like the God who delivered you, who rescued you out of your poverty, out of your slavery, out of your greatest need. You see, the son should be like the father, right? He came as a father to them and he says, you should be like me. Psalm 146 verses 5 through 9 is uh, such a statement about this. I was just going to mention it, but I think I need to maybe turn there. So Psalm 146. Verse 5, how blessed is he whose help is the God of Jacob, whose hope is in the Lord his God, who made heaven and earth, the sea, and all that is in them, who keeps faith forever, who executes justice for the oppressed, who gives food to the hungry. The Lord sets the prisoners free. The Lord opens the eyes of the blind. The Lord raises up those who are bowed down. The Lord loves the righteous. The Lord protects the strangers. He supports the fatherless and the widow. He thwarts the way of the wicked. To be like the Lord God is to help the needy. The picture of God that Israel needed to imitate. Proverbs 14.31, He who oppresses the poor taunts his maker. But he who is gracious to the needy honors him. Now you get to the New Testament and you can see our Lord's heart and why he came to rescue Israel from her sin. Luke 4.18 Jesus is opening up his public ministry. And you remember this. He enters into the synagogue and he grabs that scroll. And uh, the scroll that he picked was a scroll from Isaiah. And he opens it up to a particular place. And it is to this section where it says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. 
He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set free those who are oppressed, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. And then you remember, he went on to say, this that I am reading to you in your presence is happening right now. And do you remember their response? They wanted to throw him off a cliff. They wanted to stone him to death. Saying that he has come to care for the needy and the poor? He said, but isn't that referring to spiritual blindness and spiritual oppression and spiritual captivity? Listen, beloved, it's both. It's both. Israel's history was neglecting the poor, the needy, the blind, both physically and spiritually. I mean, read John 9. They believe that people born blind were that way because of their own sin, that it was their own fault. And Jesus says, I came to heal those people. I came to rescue them from their need. And here is our Lord. He always cares for the broken, needy, and downcast, and hurting, and poor Now, you want a picture of all of this. Turn to Matthew 25. Just before Jesus went to the cross, he gave this message about the future kingdom. Now, who's going to be in this kingdom? Verse 31. When the Son of Man comes, he's talking about himself, Jesus, He will sit on his glorious throne. All nations will gather before him and he'll make this separation. Now, on the one side you have sheep and on the other side you have goats. The sheep are the believers. The goats are the make-believers, the pretenders, the the fake. How do you know the difference between one and the other? Verse 35, Jesus tells us, For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me in, and so forth. It's what you did with the needy. What direction your your love went. And what I love about what Jesus says is the sheep will say, well, I mean, when did we do all of that, Jesus? I mean, I don't remember doing all the things you said. And what he's going to say is, when you did it to the least of these, you did it to me. You have an eye to those people. And because you have an eye to those people, I know you have an eye to me. What is he saying? You demonstrated that you had a born again, regenerated, redeemed, washed, renewed love for Christ. Then you have the goats. Now what made them, verse 41, depart from me. Verse 46, Jesus said, these will go away into eternal punishment. So what you have here is caring for the needy is a pretty serious thing, right? I mean, he saves us to do that, to be that way, see. We don't have to just turn it on. We've been born again to be that. That's just how we are. It's just who we are. You know, beloved, there have been so many examples of just godly, poor people in the Bible all over the place. 
the Lord used them all in mighty ways. I mean, and a couple of them come to my mind. Mary and Joseph, right? Obviously. So poor when Jesus was born, they couldn't offer anything but two young pigeons, it says. That's the lowest. You're at the poorest place if that's what you're doing. The Lord used them. But listen to Mary and what she says about herself in Luke one forty six. Mary said, My soul exalts the Lord, and my spirit has rejoiced in God my Savior, for he has had regard for the humble state of his slave. Here is Mary, and Mary says, he picked me, and I don't know why he picked me, because I'm the lowest of the low. I, I just, I don't have anything. I can't repay him with anything. I mean, I went to make an offering after the baby was born, and all we could give were two young pigeons. I mean, I'm not much. The Lord said, no, you're exactly what, I, what I'm looking for. You're exactly what I want. So I said there are a couple of people. Who's the other? Well, Jesus himself. I mean, he came down from heaven. He took on flesh. He was, in doing that, he was born in a horse trough. Micah 5, 2. But as for you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, too little to be among the clans of Judah. From you, one will go forth for me to be ruler in Israel. I mean, he says, he says he had no place to lay his head. said that when he got older. I mean, he never owned a home or land. You know, the only thing he owned was a robe. And you remember what happened there? It got stripped off him. And then they gambled for it to, you know, to take it from him. That's it. That's all he owned. That happened at the cross, right? Now, what's the point in it all? It is that the Lord chooses the humble, the Lowly, the poor, the needy. Why? So he can lift them up and make it clear that he is gracious and merciful and compassionate. And remember Gideon? <laughs> Not mighty, right? Not only did the Lord choose him, he whittled down his army to just 300 guys so that it would be clear that the Lord chooses differently. See? He chooses differently than us. What a lesson. I mean, you want to see how the Lord picks people? 1 Corinthians one twenty six. For consider your calling, brethren, that there were not many wise according to the flesh, not many noble, but God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise, the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong, the base things and the despised. God has chosen things that are not so that he may nullify the things that are so that no man may boast before God. That's how the Lord chooses. He chooses the poor and the needy and the destitute and the lame and the spiritually broken and the ones that have a history of failure and a history of being downtrodden and rejects. You know, when you become a believer, it kind of changes how you see things so much, doesn't it? I remember when I was young, younger, say, you know, you never say, you know, the other word. But when you're, I'm hearing I'm about in a high school age, going and playing basketball, all these, you know, 20, 21, 22 year old GI guys. And we, they would always, you'd always get a group of people and they start picking them. And I knew I didn't have a whole lot to offer young Super short, <laughs> playing the wrong sport, right? Want to play basketball out there with those guys. Pick me, you're thinking to yourself, right? Oh, I can show them that I can play whatever. And, 
as an unbeliever, it used to just infuriate me on the inside. That, you know, I wanted to be picked. I wanted to be up here. I wanted to be seen up here. Then I became a believer and realized, oh, Lord, you gave me the illustration I needed to see for my life. You pick lowly people. You pick the less. You pick the ones that are unable to repay you in any way. I needed to be humbled. Now, to be sure, he's talking about being that on the inside, poor on the inside. Blessed are the what? Poor in spirit. There has to be a poverty about your spirit, about how you see yourself. See, In James 2, verse 5, listen, my beloved brethren, did not God choose the poor of this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he promised to those who love him? This congregation was starting to look down on the poor. By the way, the key phrase is to those who love him. He says, hey, you're looking down on the poor. Don't do that. God saved these poor people to make it clear He chooses differently. He goes on to tell them, verse 6, But you have dishonored the poor man. Have you not noticed that it is the rich that oppress you, that drag you into court? What can we do? Verse 8, fulfill the royal law. What's that? Love your neighbor as yourself. And if you disobey in that, you become guilty of breaking the whole law and you'll be judged mercilessly by it, he says. In other words, God saves us to love needy people. That's the point. You say, so God doesn't save rich people? Well, remember what Jesus said in Matthew 19? It's hard. You say it's hard for him? No. But it's hard for a rich person to see his need to be saved. There are some. I mean, remember Joseph of Arimathea? Wealthy guy. And uh, God saved him. You know, you know why he's so important? God saved him to use him And maybe Joseph is like, this was the thing that he's like, hey, I can't even believe the Lord saved me, but he wanted to use me. Why? Because he needed my tomb. And he had this tomb. He was a wealthy guy. You know what happened to people that died uh, the death that Jesus died? And they were poor. They just get put on a heap of people that were dead and taken outside the camp, and just burned up. The Lord made sure, the Lord God made sure that would not happen to his son. He saved Joseph of Arimathea so he could have a tomb to be put in and fulfill Isaiah 53. So God chose Joseph. How about Zacchaeus? I mean, even if he got his riches the sketchy way, the Lord saved him and gave, and you know, remember, he gave half his wealth away. Barnabas, wealthy guy, the Lord used him to take care of the church in Acts 4 at Jerusalem. Lydia, rich lady, right? I mean, God saved her and he saved the people in her town, some people in her town, and and it became the church at Philippi, and that church met in her house. There are some rich people the Lord does save. But listen, every single person, whether you have wealth or not, you're saved the same way, poor in spirit, right? They all became poor in spirit. Isn't it interesting that the Lord chose 12 disciples and every single one of them was poor except maybe two of them. Matthew, the tax collector, but he got his money the wrong way. And Judas... 
who got his money the wrong way too, as he was stealing it from their own, you know, their their uh, money that they had, the collection that they had, that they they had their purse, if you will, their treasury. All the other disciples were poor and needy and just a bunch of nobodies going nowhere. But the Lord chooses. So he, he chooses the poor. And if he saves the rich, it's to, it's to do certain things. And you know, rich, people of wealth. So many here in America, that's what you are. But listen, beloved, the Lord has a message for you if you have money. First Timothy 6.17 Instruct those who are rich in this present world not to be conceited or to fix their hope on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly supplies us with all things to enjoy. Instruct them to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, storing up for themselves the treasure of a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is life indeed. In other words, there's no life in riches. You ever hear that? Whoa, that guy makes a lot of money. I bet you he's doing all right. Really? Where do you get that from? Just because he has money doesn't mean he's doing all right. There's no life in riches. He saves some rich people to understand that, to understand that God has given them wealth to share it, to use it, to have a sharing life. And that brings us to the one who had the most and shared the most. 2 Corinthians 8, verse 9. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you through his poverty might become rich. That's what you do with riches. You share it. He had it, and he shared it all. He shared the most so that we could get eternal life. He purchased it for us, and to do that, he became poor. The well-off need to remember James 5, verse 1, Come now, you rich, weep and howl for your miseries which are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted and your garments have become moth-eaten. Your gold and your silver have rusted. And their rust will be a witness against you and will consume your flesh like fire. It is in the last days that you have stored up your treasure. There's an outcry against you. Where? Verse 4, from those who worked and were poor and you ignored that. When the Lord comes back, he will punish you for it. Does that sound familiar? Sure. Beloved, I hope you understand the Lord's heart in this. All right, let's go back to 1 Corinthians 16 here. Let's finish this up. This is the reason why Paul made that collection for the saints in Jerusalem. He says, I just want to demonstrate the heart of God for the poor. Eight principles on giving for believers. First, the reason for giving, verse 1, for the saints, right? Why give? To support the needs of the saints and the needs of those that lead us. Second, the routine in giving, verse 2, first day of the week, right? What's that tell us? When do you give? I mean, you have a stewardship each week. The Lord wants you to deal with your heart each week. And we went over that. Third, the route in giving, verse 2, where do you give? You put aside and save, it says. Not at a bank. But right here in the local church, you lay it at the feet of the leaders. No earmarking, you just give. Fourth, the realm of giving. Verse 2 again, I mean, who gives? Who's involved? What's it say? Let each of you. And so every believer gives. Nobody is exempt. Fifth, the range of giving. Verse 2, how much do we give? 10%? No. 
as he may prosper, it says. And we learn that the Lord doesn't want your tithe. He wants your heart. And so give whatever your heart says to give. And so this is called free will giving, just like the Israelites in Exodus. Remember that? Now, what should motivate this kind of giving? Point number six, the rouse for giving. The word rouse just means to incite, to give a rise to something. What motivates the giving? What gets our giving going? What provokes it? Verse 2 again, it says, Let no collections be made when I come. Now, why does Paul say that? That no collections be made when I come. Paul says, I want this giving to be from your regular giving. It needs to be systematic. It needs to be because your routine and your giving. Some churches have to do special things to get people to give. You know, get the music going. You ever wonder that? You ever be at those churches, the plate goes around, the music gets started, and it's kind of like you're working on your little heartstrings there, right? Maybe, you know, you're a church that you, you do, you, hey, let's, we need to do the fundraiser, right? Have the special events. Just really work the emotions for people. Put special pictures of hurting and needy people up so that you can see, oh man, I feel so bad. Every time I walk by that picture, I just gotta give. And you feel sorry for them and you, and you give. Paul says, I don't want you to see me and then be reminded about the need and then give out of some kind of guilt or because you feel bad. That's why he says that no collections be made when I come. I don't want it to be made then. It needs to happen before I get there. And the reason why that would happen that way is because your giving is regular. So you don't have to worry about it. It needs to happen because you do it every week, see. And it it can't be others that get you to give. You know, like when they built the tabernacle, it has to come from the heart, beloved. So many people that just wait to be moved before they give. It can't be us as believers. That's not how the Lord wants it done. Luke 16, you give out of faithfulness. You give out of a routine of faithfulness. You've planned it. You've set it aside. You you do that so that it can't be touched by some emotional whim. That's why you do it that way. So you have the reason for it, the routine. You have the route where you give. You have the the realm. Every person gives. You have the range, verse 2, how much you're to give. You have the rouse for giving, what motivates it. Should it be fear or guilt or any other person that's trying to convince you? The next one, number seven, the refuge in giving. The refuge in giving. Verse three. Now by refuge, I mean protection. The the place of protection. There needs to be safety in giving. Say, so what do you mean? You need to feel that when you give, it is then going into the hands of safe people. Not only to take it in and receive it and record it, but then to be handled, to be made decisions for. Verse 3, and when I arrive, whomever you may approve, I shall send them with letters to carry your gift to Jerusalem. 
And I love how Paul does this. He's going to make sure that no one accuses him of any wrongdoing with this collection, right? With all this money, here's how you safeguard it. Whatever person you approve, there needs to be an approval of the of people. I'll put that money in his hands and send letters telling them all about it and all about him so that the integrity is clear. And, you know, churches need to do this. Can't just have any per, any people, you know, handling the money. Beloved, there are two areas in life that demand integrity, where integrity becomes a massive issue. Two areas of trust. The first one is marriage. There has to be trust. And the second one is money. Can I trust them with this money? That's the question. Paul says giving needs to have a refuge, a safe place to be stored. What kind of people need to be chosen? Trustworthy ones, right? Honest ones. Um, by the way, that's why First Timothy 3, verse 3 Qualification for an elder, it says, is that he is free from the love of money. Even the deacons, it says, those people that would help out. First Timothy three three, or excuse me, First Timothy three later on, deacons not fond of sordid gain, it says. Now we collect money here. We, you know, we have it in that box that's back there. The the people that collect it and count it and get it where it needs to go need to be trustworthy, godly people of integrity. See, and I'm thankful that that's just what we have here. Some people might think as they're sitting, putting that together for the church body, maybe we should get people with a banking background. It's not necessary. Maybe someone with a business background. No. How about someone good with numbers? We don't need, that's not needed. We've got calculators and things like that, right? You know what is needed? Honesty. Just godliness. Just godliness. Godliness at this level. Trust. Remember Acts chapter 6? They sought these kinds of people when they had a problem. Seven men of good reputation, full of the Spirit and of wisdom. Handle the situation. That's it. That's how you do it. Verse 5, full of faith. Those kinds of people. People that love Christ. Spiritual people. High level love for Christ. Those are the kinds of people you put the church's money into, into their hands. Prayerful people, people of the word. All right, last one. Last one on giving, and this one might surprise you. It's a short verse, but I'll explain. Number eight, the reasonability of giving. The reasonability of giving. Look at verse four. And if it is fitting for me to go also, they will go with me. (laughs) What is he saying? Let me give you the short version here. He's saying, uh, I'll take them with me if the gift that you're giving is fitting. And the word fitting there means equal. Equal to your word. You have said that you're liberal givers. And when I come, I'm going to find out just how liberal you are. And if it is, then fine. All, they can, everything, we can go move forward on this. You know what's reasonable in giving? Generosity. Generosity. I mean, do you ever see the guy when the plate comes around and he reaches into his pockets and out come, you know, seven quarters and nine nickels? You know, he, you say, no, I don't, because I always look away, right? Ooh, I'm going to look the other direction here. You know, I'm not sure what to do with this. You don't want eye contact. I mean, maybe you're not sure what's happening. I mean, maybe that's a lot of money for that guy. We don't know. We have no idea. 
But what Paul is saying here is, and I mean he really is saying this, don't embarrass me when I get there with your giving. That's literally what he's saying. He's saying, you sure that's what he's saying? Yeah, the word, it is fitting. If it is fitting is a word that means suitable, that matches. Suitability to match something. Equal weight is what it literally means. So what, what does it need to match? Well, think about it. Here is Paul coming with um, all his heart and his love for Jerusalem, coming with the money that he has from all the other churches. And what he's saying is if it matches what the churches have done from their hearts. Not that they know what the amount is, but he wants to know, do you have generous hearts like you're supposed to? Does it match the sacrifice of coming all this way and then going all that way to Jerusalem? I'm not coming for some chintzy giving, Paul says. And the word also means to stretch out. It, it needs to stretch out and connect to the kind of hearts that you say you have. That is reasonable for their need. I mean, Luke 6.38 and 2 Corinthians 8.9, right? I mean, God gave so much, so just give. He's made it clear in those passages you'll never outgive God. Never. He'll give you back more right where you need it. And so Paul's not sure that he will go with their giving only if it is fitting. And I have to believe that he thinks it will be fitting. He's just letting them know this. Why? Because that's what a shepherd does. A shepherd pokes the heart to encourage, to get you thinking in the right direction. Now let me conclude here. What do we do with this kind of message on giving? With verses 1 through 4, personally and practically. Let me give you a few thoughts here. First, let the Lord show you your heart, okay? Will you do that? You'll notice we never set a number or anything like that. Just let the Lord show show you your heart. Second, get practical. Start looking at your finances and where the Lord would have you make changes. Just get practical. And I'll say this. Nobody has to know. Don't let your right hand know what your left is doing. Nobody has to know that way. But the Lord knows. But do get practical. Third, get sacrificial. Does your giving demonstrate that you trust Him? Does it even demand that you trust Him? You know, what a great place to, to, to be, right? To, to live by faith. Um, fourth, remember Christ and the cross. That's the indescribable gift of 2 Corinthians 9.15. Fifth, and this is the last one I have, the Lord loves a cheerful giver. And what that tells me about me personally, and hopefully it does this for you, is that I need to repent for the closed hand and the begrudging heart that I sometimes have. Maybe you need to also. Because the Lord loves a cheerful giver. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, we have uh, tried to undertake this view and understanding of giving and try to convey from your word the kind of hearts that we need to have when it comes to this. We want to be like you, Lord. We want to have a real heart for the needy people. And we don't just want it to be um, feelings where we just feel bad or intentions. We want it to be actual action.
Help us to be the kind of givers that in giving in this body we're ready to care for wherever the needs are. And if it be that there are needy people that come along that we're free to help them, will you help us to have that type of commitment um, as you have to us? We love you and pray for this in Jesus' name. Amen.